This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations. Tonight's show is about trans couples, and my guest is Helen Boyd. Helen is the author of two books about trans issues. The first was My Husband Betty, and her most recent book is called She's Not the Man I Married. Helen is also the author of a blog, N Gender, a journal of gender and trans issues. It's widely read within the gender community. She and her partner, Betty, live currently in Wisconsin, and she teaches at Lawrence University in the Gender Studies Department. Welcome to Safe Space, Helen. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'd love to start out with the love story and how you and Betty met and how you learned about Betty's transness. Everybody likes the love story. Um, <laughs> we met uh, at a reading group, which I think is sufficiently geeky of us, um, mm-hmm. that in fact I had organized originally. And uh, I asked her out, which I guess was a sign at the time she was living as male in the world. Um, when I asked her out, she apparently had a full face of makeup on and had a moment where she was going to say no to my date because she didn't, she had liked me as well when we met, and she didn't want to have to tell me about the gender stuff. But in fact, she did say yes, and we had an amazing first date and second date and third date. And uh, About a week and a half in, effectively, uh, she told me that she occasionally cross-dressed, <laughs> which was about the biggest understatement in the world. Um, but that was basically what she knew at the time. And I really didn't have a negative reaction to that. It was more like, you know, everybody's weird in their own special way. And um, I don't think anyone expects to date someone who's perfect. So, And we got along in so many other fantastic ways, kind of an instant simpatico. So, um, yeah, I said, whatever. You know, you're in New York City, and that was where we were at the time. And uh, people come here to figure out stuff like their gender. So um, that was sort of the idea right from the get-go, is that she was really terrified of going out in the world presenting as a woman, and I, you know, grabbed her hand and dragged her out a little bit. So um, that was basically our first, yeah, about our first year together was a lot of that exploration. And, of course, just our being together for the first year was amazing. So So maybe I should just interject because, of course, you're so fluent in referring to your partner as she. And, And not everyone listening may know that, in fact, when you first fell in love with Betty, Betty was presented as a man. So right, that, that first week and a half until you learned about the rare cross-dressing. Right, exactly. You were so using male pronouns then. as a woman. Right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That felt just worth clarifying. Right. So you you had this really open-minded response, and it sounded like Betty was initially really scared that you would not. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the things that most people who cross-dress, even, I think most people even with other kinds of gender issues worry about is the rejection that they might face if they tell someone what's going on. Um, I was enough of a tomboy, um, certainly myself, that it wasn't like a gender issue was that foreign to me either. Uh, but I also, um, I had been hanging out in the LGBT community or the gay and lesbian by trans questioning at all the initials you'd like um, communities for a long time. So it also that kind of variance wasn't really surprising to me. Um, and as a result, yes, I mean, it, it really, we had a lot of fun really in the first years because for me it was kind of adventuresome and, and I got to sort of feel what it was like to like be the one to pay the doorman and to open the cab doors. And so that was, you know, so I got to try on things as well that I wouldn't have, normally been allowed to do um, in 
a regular heterosexual relationship. And so there was a lot of kind of playfulness about it, the way that we kind of switched back and forth in terms of who led and who followed, even in terms of dancing and um, all of that kind of stuff was really was really great. It was really only later when she realized she needed to transition that we really uh, came upon any kind of issue. So, And how far into your relationship was that? You know, it's an excellent question. People ask um, when she transitioned, and it, there is really no date. I know that there are, there are people who celebrate the day of their name change as the day that they transitioned or the day that they had some you know, version of major surgery or the day they first went on hormones. People, trans people celebrate those anniversaries in very different ways. We never really did that. <laughs> so um, we're also not, we don't really notice anniversaries, I guess, the same way other people do. But she was also, she kind of slid into transitioning in a certain way so that, and her story I think is very atypical in that she often gave me uh, the lead in terms of deciding what I was ready for next. Um, plenty of trans people couldn't do that, wouldn't do that, um, don't even think that's advisable. But for her, it was very much exactly what she wanted to do. So, um, and because she was very lucky in a lot of ways, she she talks about how she won the sort of um, genetic lottery as a trans person because she was very able to pass as a woman, um, even when she had not done anything medical. I mean, all she had to do was grow her hair a little bit long, you know, and grow her nails and put on some makeup, and, and she could pass reasonably well. So um, it was a very different experience for us. Other people, especially in the male-to-female, the MTF community or the MTF spectrum, people often have to be on hormones a little bit longer or have more, you know, like they have more facial hair to have removed or things like that. Um, she, I think, had six facial hairs to take care of. So um, yeah, she had a much easier time of it. A lot it. And of women I think feel was... jealous right now just hearing that. <laughs> oh, don't, me too. Um, I've always <laughs> joked I've had more hair removal than she has. So, um, mm. you, you know, know and that's that's sort of regular. I mean, we, I know we make all that stuff invisible anyway. But, um, yeah, we we had uh, a much easier time of it, and yet we also did transition, I guess, in a, in a less typical way, in that she had really effectively socially transitioned for quite a while before she did anything legal or medical. You know, I just want to go back to what you said at the beginning. She was very lucky, and I, I was actually thinking you were referring to having married you. <laughs> oh, well, she would say that too, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> That's what I thought you meant. Um, you know, I want to uh, – I've just, you know, been reading your book, your second book, and I've been incredibly immersed in it, and there's this wonderful um, – analogy you use in the way that you, the two of you took this on is kind of the way that people meet the dragon in the road. And yeah. I love, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. I can read you the quote if you want, because I, I have would, it in front yeah, of me. I would love to hear it again. And everybody should hear it because it's a great quote. I thought so yeah. too. So the quote in the book, and then I'll follow with the notes in the back because they both feel important. Flannery O'Connor once said that the story of a life is really the story of how a person meets his dragon in the road and what he does when he meets it. My husband's transgender nature is his dragon. And then at the back it says, no matter, and this is quoting Flannery O'Connor now directly, no matter, what the, uh, no matter what form the dragon may take, it is of this mysterious passage past him or into his jaws that stories of any depth will always be concerned to tell. And this being the case, it requires considerable courage at any time in any country not to turn away from the storyteller. So, yeah, that's great. gives me chills. Still. Me too. I just loved that. I just loved it. And part of what um, I found so moving about your book is, while your husband's transgender nature may have been his now her dragon, mm. clearly it seems to me that 
being married to someone trans became your dragon and you embraced it as such. Is that how you see it? Absolutely. Um, we, I mean, one of the things that I mentioned before is that we have a significant simpatico, but I think we are both of us people who would rather just take the bull by the horns, just to borrow another metaphor, um, uh, rather than, than avoid it or escape it. Um, and me, I am much more like that, actually, I think, than Betty even. Um, mm. But it was very much. I mean, being with someone who is trans is, is a complicated business. It's not, not for the uh, faint of heart, I don't think. Uh, there's a lot of soul-searching. It's also an incredibly rewarding experience because you are absolutely living with someone and loving somebody who has um, an immense amount of stuff they've got to sort out. Um, and often you do too, obviously, two people in a relationship. And it does mean often, at least for me, putting some of my own stuff uh, on a back burner for a little while um, and having her sort of take up a little bit more of the air in the room, as it were, uh, for her transition. But she was incredibly generous about it. Um, I've certainly seen people, any kind of major life crises, right, people get very self-involved and, and uh, that's kind of the nature of sort of huge changes. But... Uh, she was incredibly gracious about it. It was one of the things that I noticed about her actually from the get-go. So um, even now, I mean, hearing that I referred to her as he, even in that section of the book, surprises me. It's always a shock now to hear. Mm. I can't even conceive of, uh, even when I look back at our wedding pictures, that I see the woman that I'm married to. It's a very interesting experience to have switched her gender entirely in my head. That is. It's very powerful. Right, because writing this, it's clear that you're you are in transition in the process of this book. Absolutely. There's a great deal more transition for the, and I think it's it's a different, one of the things that I, I often say to partners of trans people is that it's a lot harder to contend with change that isn't internally motivated. I mean, I think for the trans person who's dealing with day-to-day discrimination often, it's a it's a very difficult journey, but they they know that they're scratching, you know, they know that they're figuring out something that they have to figure out. When you're the partner, it can be very bewildering because all of this dramatic change in your relationship is basically coming from something outside you. It's not what you want. It's not your goal necessarily. Um, you're there to be supportive, and that can be very tricky. That feels um, enormously different, right? Because it's not, I mean, battling one's dragon in some ways is really about trying to be who you are in the world, no matter right. what that is. And and your your struggle is, is radically different than that. It's much more about, can I love this person can I stretch myself this far? Can I do this? Does How does this shape my sense of self? I mean, it feels like a very different challenge. Right. And, and do I have to say no, or is there something that's not going to work? I mean, nobody um, likes being in the position where they feel like they can't go further in a relationship. And I, I really greatly respect and admire partners who realize at whatever stage, that they just kind of go, I, I can't do this. <laughs> um, it's a lot. Like I said, I mean, I'm an adventurous sort. Um, this was a little bit more adventure than I even bargained for uh, because the change even in self-identity is so huge. And once you know somebody who has gone through this kind of process to figure out a way to make themselves maybe happy but certainly functional in the world, uh, productive in the world in a cool way, you realize that you, you don't really have any excuses yourself either, which is a really, that was, I think, the the part of it that surprised me the most was realizing that I couldn't um, abide my own excuses for why I wasn't doing certain things for me so to make myself feel more that. productive. So, yeah, tell me more what you mean by that, Helen. 
Well, it's, I think all of us, you know, have sort of big things or risks or gambles we might want to take. I've always been a writer. Um, it was something that I always did, but I always had jobs and I always traveled. Basically, I did everything else first in a lot of ways, except when I was in school. And I realized I had no, um, you know, watching my partner go through this and then starting to talk to people um, when I was about to write the books is that I, I realized I wanted to go actually write in a way that and take that seriously in a way that I never had before because it was a little scary. Um, so we all have, I think, those things that we wish we could do that if we, you know, we put together schemes where if all of these circumstances fell into place in just the right way, we could do that or whatever. Um, and I found that, that knowing Betty and certainly meeting other trans people in the course of research and, and, um, and the books after they were written was really kind of amazing because you meet people who have stood up to quite significant mean dragons effectively. Mm. These are not like sleepy old dragons that trans people are dealing with. They're pretty ferocious. And you realize that it's like, wow, that's that's possible. And not only that, but you get to see what it actually takes in a person's life to make that kind of dramatic change. It really makes sense to me. When I first started doing this radio show, I used to joke that it was about coming out of the closet Although, right. although every closet had a different name, you know, and, and which speaks, it's very much what you're saying. I think the courage that it takes to affirm who you are in a world that may judge it or, or be violent toward it or be ignorant, shaming. Absolutely. And how inspiring it is to be in the company of people stepping out in whatever form that takes. It's wonderful. So, so maybe that's a, a, a moment to shift um, to one of the things that I really loved. A theme in your book was about... Um, how invisible heterosexual gender variance is. <laughs> right. And I was intrigued by that and kind of the, the feeling that you had about how it was frowned on if people thought that you were wearing the pants or saw you in the more uh, traditionally masculine role as a woman. And I'd love to hear you say more about what, what you noticed in yourself about that anxiety. It's, it's so subtle. I, that is the thing that I, I find striking about it is that at least, I, I mean, on the schoolyard, I assume it's not subtle. Um, no, I know it's not subtle on the schoolyard. Gender variance is, is paid back often in vicious ways. But in the in the adult, more polite world, it was always little things that if, if Betty and I were out to dinner uh, when she was still presenting as male and I paid the bill, very often the waiter or the waitress would bring the change back to her. Mm when she was male. So as if indicating to me that, that, you know, this was not correct, that they were supposed to be doing the the financial transaction um, with the man at the table. Um, so there were little things like that, that I think that were indirect messages all the time. And as any, as any heterosexual married woman knows, I mean, the whole way that uh, your husband can be deferred to in ways that are 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 really kind of upsetting <laughs> if you're a feminist. Um, and I've had many people since come to me, uh, uh, trans men especially report these kinds of experiences, but the idea of, uh, I had a friend tell me the story about going to the vet um, and talking to the vet, and he was there with his mother, whose whose pet it was that was sick, and the vet basically continued to talk to him even when his mother was in the room, and he just started to get more and more angry as the interview took place. Uh, but the, those kinds of subtle messages as to as to you know which role you're supposed to play um, I think are pretty common. And for heterosexual people, we really do ignore, I think there's a simultaneous thing that happens, like like straight people um, can't be gender variant. People assume that they can't. When they, we see gender variants, we always assume that it's being expressed by a gay or lesbian person often. 
Um, and how do you But the other way that? around as well. You know, why, why is that? Because, of course, there are so many feminists who want to explore these roles and, and are exploring them. Right. It's so why do we have such narrow boxes for... Why are we still <laughs> hung up? I, I, You know, I have no idea. <laughs> That's an excellent question. It feels like why. we should be so far past that by now. But I do. I mean, I one of the things I do is teach, and like even having to explain to people that, you know, it was only not even 50 years ago that women weren't allowed to wear pants into nice restaurants. Um, that kind of historical context, I think, gives us some idea as to why we don't see as much flexibility around gender roles. And there's this assumption as well that, and we've got a lot of cultural mythology and all sorts of other um, cultural messages that tell us that you know there are natural roles for men and women, um, and that you're somehow going against nature and perhaps your God if if you mess with that. And so I think those, that's still very strong, and it's not. I don't know, because it's not to be dismissed. I mean, right, that always comes up, even feminists, right, are, are ruining, they're ruining everything. You know, yeah. <laughs> we hear that, right, every couple of years, every couple of months, right. Or, sometimes. Right, I mean, we were just discussing before the show, uh, Jen Hodgson, who's the sound engineer, and I, about how sort of one of the worst criticisms you can make of a woman is that she's in some way emasculating or castrating. Absolutely. That that is just, dis, you know, considered despicable. And Which I, makes me like the biggest horror ever. I was going to yeah. say, and so you know, is is it your fault that Betty transitioned? I, I was worried about people thinking that for a long time, um, actually. Um, and in fact, I did have other. I had people tell me that you know maybe if you maybe if you act a little bit more feminine, um, huh. that you know maybe she'd feel more affirmed. And I was like, first of all, I'm not interested. Second of all, right. like, no, like you don't. Maybe you just let trans- him win more when you play checkers. <laughs> right, exactly. If I just laugh a little bit more at her jokes, she'd be affirmed as a man, and then that would be fine. But no, uh, you know, it doesn't work that way. Um, no. Person's so, internal sense of gender is so strong that, yeah. So one of the things I also, a story that I'd love to ask you to tell from your book is is how kind of, um, for you as a feminist, how it was for you when Betty started exploring some of the more femme aspects of being <laughs> a trans woman, you know, oh, things that you had rejected as a feminist. I'd love to hear you tell the shoe store story or just sort of tell me a little <laughs> bit about store, that. Oh, that, that, you know, the funny thing is this has not ended at all. I mean, we, I've just gotten, we just got an apartment where we have separate bathrooms and I am so pleased that I do not have numerous tools in my way every morning because she has her you know, flattening iron and whatever. There's also stuff that her I beauty tools. never needed. Sorry? Her beauty tools. Yes, all of the beauty tools. Um, uh-huh. And and I don't, yeah, and I don't like the clutter particularly, but that's that's another issue entirely. But yes, the, the femininity issue is very, very challenging, and that's definitely something else that I would <laughs> warn partners about is that your own gender identity is going to come into question. And I think, from what I have observed, many partners of trans people um, have some of their own, I mean, most people have issues with their gender in general, but I do think that we end up often being drawn to trans people exactly because we have some gender stuff of our own. I certainly didn't want to deal with mine again. I thought it was nicely, you know, I just sort of put it somewhere. I lived in a very nice gender-neutral universe until I started dating Betty, and she, she basically one day I was going in to buy sandals, just a pair of summer sandals. I tend to be femier in the summer than I am in other months for whatever reason. And um, so I was buying a pair of sandals, and, and I came out, and she was completely forlorn-looking, and I asked why she looked so upset, and, and she basically said, well, I want to be a, a, a woman buying shoes in a in a shoe store. And 
and for me, <laughs> this is like a dreadful chore. You know, I like plain shoes, generally speaking. They're almost always black. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, it was just getting in and out as fast as possible, not having to make small talk, because I hate small talk about what other shops were having. You know, I don't know brands. I don't do any of that stuff. I find a pair of shoes I like, and I leave as quickly as possible. And she really wanted the whole experience of being a woman in a shoe store, buying shoes with other women and talking and and that was such a foreign idea to me that it brought up a lot of these kinds of issues of whether or not I had, you know, if I'd become an acceptable version of woman as soon as she was sort of taking to sort of aspects of femininity and feminine culture that had never appealed to me at all. Um, I really had to reconsider a lot of things and went through certainly periods where it was like, oh, you know, maybe I should wear heels more. And then like trying to again. Um, and then thinking that's ridiculous, um, <laughs> and and just going back and forth between things like that. So sort of as she started expressing her gender, I had times where I said, okay, well, she's going to be the femme one, then I can be the butch one, and I'm good with the opening doors thing. I'm much better at that anyway. And then other times where it was like, well, if she can be femme, I mean, I knew her as a male-bodied person. It was like, well, if, if she can be femme, then certainly I can manage it. Um, how hard could it be? And um, so, yeah, but my my personality is not actually. Now I think of myself as very just strongly gendered in both directions. I have parts of aspects of myself that I think of as very feminine and aspects that I think of as, as more masculine. Um, but I certainly am not a femme in the traditional definition, and, and Betty certainly is. So she um, kind of likes that stuff a lot more than I ever have. But she also, I mean, at the same time, you know, she can shoot a mean game of pool, you know. And, and it doesn't offend your feminist consciousness. No, it doesn't. But that it took me meeting uh, femmes, queer femmes for the most part, to get me over that. Because for having come from a heterosexual universe, the very feminine girls, um, you know, they weren't my best friends in junior high school. <laughs> so, right. Um, but when I started to meet queer femmes who, who were both feminists, and really into heels and makeup. It was like, oh, and, and who knew how to flirt with someone like me and who knew how to be friends with someone like me where it wasn't a pecking order or a hierarchy, which I find still much more in heterosexual female circles. Um, once I started meeting women who had a very different consciousness about their femininity and their beauty, um, they really changed my mind. So, yeah, femmes rock. Um, <laughs> so let me come back to what you said because that was very intriguing, the hierarchy within heterosexual women. Tell me more how you perceive that, how you experience that hierarchy. Um, for me, at least, it was being, there was always the complication of being the brainy sort, the bookish sort. Um, I was certainly, I don't know, nerdy. I always forget how those classifications were, geeky or nerdy or dorky, yeah. but something like, I was bookish, at least. Yes. Um, and, you know, the, all of the messages early on, that you're supposed to kind of drop everything and want to talk about boys and shopping. And it was just never the way I was. So I think one of the things, I mean, I work at a university now where luckily many of the other women are the same way, but the sense in um, the rest of culture, I guess, uh, is that I still have moments where I will be out with a group of women and just think, I, I'm not really sure I'm of the same make and model here because I, I just don't have the same kind of interests in. Mm -hmm. And then, then I, it, it does also make me wonder how much, all women actually have those interests and whether or not people put this on in order, you know, like that's what you're supposed to talk about when women, only women are in the room or something like I that. I think it's so, quite safe to say that all women do not have those interests. No, it's very <laughs> I safe think with some that, confidence absolutely. we can affirm that. <laughs> it's whether or not, I mean, what surprises me is when I actually do 
uh, hear groups of women sort of start talking in that direction. Yes. And go, okay, well, I guess there are women who do. You know, yes, I just, it's more that. Like right. the shoes thing. Like, I just, it's bafflement to me. It's, I just don't understand. Yes. I'm going to change the subject now, Helen, um, to asking about desire in trans couples. Because, you know, one of the things that we've been stressing in this series that we've been doing on trans issues is the difference between trans issues and sexual orientation. Right. And, um, and that's particularly true for the trans person. But for you, you know, you fell in love with someone who you thought was a man. Right. And you didn't identify as lesbian. No. But now you're married to someone who you fully, in your own mind's eye, conceive of as a woman. Right. And I'd love to hear you talk about the the in, the enormous struggle of that around your own desire and whether there would be room for that in your marriage. It is a very, very complicated um, to have been through transition with someone. I mean, the one thing I should say, I guess, is some caveat is that I had a friend many, many years before I met Betty who said to me, we know you're queer, we just don't know how. Um, (laughs) And I've kind of identified as an indeterminate queer, as someone once called it, um, before. And I certainly don't think of myself as a lesbian now, though I know that other people certainly see me as one. Um, But in terms of desire, it's very tricky. Um, It's certainly... Um, not necessarily what I would have preferred. I would have been very happy being married to crossdresser, which I'm sorry, crossdressers, but <laughs> I would have. Um, and Betty knows that just as well. So having someone who was male-bodied and still somewhat male in terms of their sexuality um, would have been easier for me. Um, the physical change was certainly complicated. And the sensitivities of being with someone who is trans, who's got very different issues. If I were dating a woman who was you know, declared female at birth and raised female, that might be very different entirely depending on what kinds of issues everybody's got, body stuff and sexuality stuff. And um, so being with a trans person who's got some discomfort over that physical stuff already is tricky. Maybe and then on top a, of it, so we, we've, we've negotiated some interesting um, ways of basically figuring this out. And, and so, you know, feel free to set a limit with this question if this feels too intrusive. <laughs> but 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 it feels to the heart of the matter in some ways because this is what's on people's minds if they're partnered. You know, when you say issues, do you mean that the person has such ambivalence about the form that their genitals take anyway that that's the – is that what you're referring to? There's, I mean, there certainly is that. Um, Betty is never rated very high on that list. Um, but people certainly do experience um, a lot of dysphoria sort of located in terms of their their genitals. But the, the not, it's everything, really. I would say it's the whole sort of body integrity issue. For Betty, it was much more about feeling like, you know, not having breasts was a bigger deal mm-hmm. um, for her than specifically the genital issues. And I think with different trans people, that will, you know, manifest in very different ways. Um, but do I do I miss having a male husband in terms of the sexuality? Yes. Um, like I said, we're still sort of sorting out how, because she, she is still in some ways, like I remember that she was a man at some point in time. Um, and so we sort of play with that to some degree in terms of our sexuality. So it really depends on the couple and certainly what the trans person, there are other trans people who would never like Betty will use her male voice if I ask her to. Um, and her voices happens to be her male voice happens to be a very sexy one. Um, there are other trans people who would never agree to do something like that, and they, that would be totally within their you know, rights and within their relationship, whatever decision they would make. For her, she knows I you know, was attracted to guys, and I'm still attracted to guys. So uh, she gives me a little bit more leeway in that respect. 
That's part so of what's very we try to make room for each other. Yeah, it's part of what's very moving in your book is is the, the how much love there is for both of you and the you know, even as you are so honest about your struggle, your clear love for Betty, you know, really shines through the book. And um, it sounds like it's very mutual in terms of your generosity with each other. It is. I mean, it's, it's also, she's hot, too. I mean, the, you know, there is the innate um, bisexuality, I should say that as well. Like, I've often been attracted to women, and she's a very attractive woman. So it's not as tricky as it might be otherwise. Helen, we're going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much for being my guest. If people want to read uh, your blog, tell me the address that they can find you on on the web. Oh, it's at myhusbandbetty.com. Uh, and, what, and that's and gender is there? And gender's there. That's where my blog is. And I then see. there are links to, we have an online community we've been running for a few years. People are welcome to join, and partners are encouraged, certainly, to join. Um, and all sorts of other links to reading materials, and et cetera, et cetera. Helen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is Dr. Anne. I've been speaking to Helen Boyd, author of the book, She's Not the Man I Married, about trans couples. If you'd like to listen to the show in its entirety or email a link of it to someone or download it from iTunes, please visit our website at safespaceradio.com. Um, we also have a Facebook site that you can search. It's new. It just came up this week, Safe Space Radio. Please look us up and like us on Facebook. That way you'll get weekly announcements and links to the show if you want to listen to it that way. Next week, I'm going to be interviewing Sandy Lovell on trans parenting. I also want to just let you know that the main trans uh, health conference is this Friday in two days. And if you want to find out about that, it's through the main trans, I think it's maintransnet.org. Yeah. Um, you can look that up. It's going to be wonderful. It's for families, friends, trans people, health providers. should be really educational. Uh, coming up next is Covering the Bases with Thaddeus.